Hello, so we are looking at 1 Samuel chapter 6 to 11. Now, chapter 6 begins with the ark, covenant ark, goes back home to Israel. In this context, the chapter continues with the story of the ark. So in the aftermath of Israel's defeat at Ebenezer, the Philistines who captured the ark and took it to Ashdod, but it brought death and destruction wherever it went, the Philistines uh, in the Philistines' territory, it was a bad omen to them. So finally, the people of Ekon insisted that it be sent back to the homeland. Now, um, chapter 6 deals with the ark. It returns to Israel's territory, but is not without an incident. The ark does not make it back to Shiloh or another major worshipping center. It leaves the story hanging until it resumes much later when David decides to bring it back to Jerusalem, which we find in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And the fact that the ark does not go back to the worship center upon its return uh, in Israel's territory is an important one because it proves that David does not violate a sanctuary to retrieve it. So what I mean is that, see, when one gathers the expression that the ark is waiting to be taken to its proper place, or in a more negative tone that the incident at Beth Shemesh where the ark is not treated with the proper respect several people die you can see they were excited that it came but in first Samuel chapter 6 19 and 20 verses you you would seen that it is foreshadowed with the Isaiah's death in second Samuel chapter 6 verse 6 to 7 so now both stories are stern reminders stern reminders in that Israel that the Lord must be treated with the uttermost respect, for it is holy. Now, the lesson the Philistines learnt the hard way. Now, they basically uh, appeal of the Philistine leaders to honour the Lord. Now, you can see that they also mentioned that they know what happened to Egypt. It's, um, it's as if everyone knows the people of Israel, where they, their background is from. It's, and um, Samuel calls for Israel to repent following the chapters of the unfolding history, uh, which you'll find it in 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verse uh, 3. Then you get second, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. Now let's do a little bit of cultural background here. See, when the Philistines need advice concerning what to do with the ark, they call the diviners. Interesting, isn't it? And the Mosaic law prohibits divination of Israel, uh, in Israel, basically. So which means that they are not allowed to use uh, such, I will call them, foretellers, because God is with them. And in the ancient Near East, uh, it is a very popular form of discerning the divine will and receiving guidance for life, etc. And we see that in Deuteronomy 18, 14. But this is nothing that the people of God should be delving in because they know that they have a living testament of what God is doing in their lives. And there are two categories of divination in the ancient world. It's the inspired divination which is initiated in the, in the sort of divine realm where uses a human intermediary. Uh, the, this type of divination takes divination also um, originates in the divine realm so to speak but it's a revelation 
uh, a revelation which is communicated through events, phenomena, and can be observed. It is the uh, deductive type of divination uh, that the law prohibits. A deductive divination also uh, involves the interpreting of omens and uh, which includes examining and internal organs of animals, uh, casting lots, observing celestial, terrestrial, and um, what's it called, uh, astronomical patterns. Now, these are things that God has, has made it very clear that the people of God do not delve in things such as this. You get also magic, which played a very important role in the ancient Near Eastern religions. Um, you get magic which involves the use of incantations, rituals uh, designed to manipulate cosmic forces in pursuit of a sort of self-interest to ward off the danger and associated bad omens, you know, like good luck and bad luck nonsense. Yeah, so and then you get the priest and the diviners which described in uh, chapter 6 advised the Philistines with uh, the cart and an ad hoc form of divination designed to determine if Israel's God um, really is the source of the calamities. But you can see even in that, there's a guesswork. They are looking at uh, deduction. and uh, they. But what's interesting is that they know what uh, of a sin offering, uh, a guilt pardon, a guilt offering that is re required. But the reparation for the offering is a form of golden tumors. I don't know what a tumor looked like, maybe some balls or something, and rats which appear to be a type of sympathetic magic designed to draw off the, call it the plague or appease the Israelite deity. Quite interesting, uh, let's think uh, or look into guilt offering. This refers to a reparation of offering that um, makes compensation for the offenses involved and the consecration of the uh, sacred space or property. Now, uh, one, I mean, they um, seem to put a guilt offering here for the mishandling of the Ark, which is supposed to be a sacred status. And, and in the case of uh, offering the task, they of five gold tumors and five gold rats. The gold objects, um, which probably costed quite a lot, communicates that Israel's uh, God is worthy of honor. Funny enough, when the Ark of the Covenant goes to the people of Israel, uh, quite a number of them are not um, handling it in the proper respect it's due. The gold objects have great monetary, you can see that there. And um, apparently they expected uh, these objects to draw off the disease. Maybe that's, I think, possibly that's what caused the disease of tumors maybe came up. So it's to appease it. So maybe that's the reason why they used five tumors and five rats. Uh, so, but they did say that the uh, that uh, that they represented the cities and the, the leaders. But then the probably question is why that? Maybe they saw themselves as the leaders being rats in front of God, and the tumors being that which they've been oppressed by. And then, um, yeah. So it's quite interesting. So. You see that uh, the uh, the glory has left, they say. But you know, it, Israel seems to also be superstitious in some sense, in that they looked at that uh, covenant ark as being their good luck charm, 
forgetting that Jehovah. So what, what are some of our theological insights here? So the Philistine religious leaders advise their people to give glory to Israel, which means the word glory is kabot, and warn them not to burden uh, their hearts. Uh, as, as the wordplay highlights the reversal that is necessary in the Philistines' attitude towards Israel's God, and the leaders who apparently are familiar with Israel's uh, Exodus tradition point out that the pharaohs and the Egyptians initially resisted Israel's God, but uh, eventually the, uh, say relented and allowed the Lord, uh, uh, basically the Lord's people to leave the land. Their command to ascribe glory to the Lord echoes the glory to himself. And the narrator is undoubtedly um, included, includes the leader's exhortation in the story because it's amazing that they are having that discussion in the privacy of their own whatever. And the story of that conversation is recorded in the scriptures. They too must have ascribed glory to the Lord and not hardened their hearts. So we see that. And even though they have lost the battle, they've God in his glory still allows them to be uh, reverent. So a holy God must be treated with, whole, with respect. And we must not forget that, that he's not some familiarity or colloquial uh, mate that we can just have a chit, you know, like a, a pat on the back type of thing. This is a holy God we're dealing with. And God hasn't changed in any way that re and he requires respect. So though the Lord is not to be identified with the ark, the people, and not to be disrespectful and disrespecting it yeah, as an object of sort of curiosity. Oh, the ark, let's all have a look at it and then they'll die. So the ark is a symbol of God's uh, holy presence and it is to be treated with honor. So the people of Beth Shemesh and the Lord's holiness and the Lord's holiness is the cause of for the fear because they have witnessed firsthand the effects of violating it. As you see in chapter 620, and before this word of holy had appeared, only twice the former prophets for Joshua and God's holiness is the cause for the pestilence. Uh, for he knows that Israel propensity to violate God's standards and thereby offend his holiness. And uh, you see that in uh, Joshua 24, 19. So Hannah employs um, the term when she describes the Lord as holy, sovereign and unique in his capacity to protect his people, as in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. Now for Hannah, the Lord's holiness is a cause for celebration, for his in, uh, sort of com uh, compatibility to assure his loyal followers full of uh, vindication. Now, the contrast between Hannah and the people of Beth Shemesh is particularly uh, striking. Those who disrespected the holy God find themselves terrifying, while those who honor him and his holiness to be reassuring and the cause for hope. And isn't that the case for believers and non-believers, or those in darkness and those in light? See, those who have offended the Lord must honor him rather than harden their hearts, just like Pharaoh and this contrast. So when Israel violates God's holiness and experiences the punishment that's inevitably, inevitably, um, inevitably uh, uh, you know, um, resulting, they have two options before them. 
stubborn resistance or humble repentance. And so both the Palestinian leaders uh, and the narrator of our story recommends the second of these appropriate responses, both in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses what, 1 to 10, where the former prophets hold, our, hold out the responsibility of the repentance for Israel and the Israelite people, you see, even when they have blatantly rebelled against God and experienced his punishment in full measure. We can see this throughout the scripture. The later prophets urged the exiled nations to, resound, to respond in repentance and experience the renewal of God's uh, office. Now, the author of the Hebrews, using the wilderness generation as a negative example, also warned God's people of the danger of hardening one's heart, as we see near. And that hardening of the heart is a, a theme that you will find throughout the scriptures, even in Romans chapter 1, where the people, uh, they are disrespectful to who God made them to be. And then he hands them over to a debased mind, to that they continue to live in the desires that they please, which is, which is against God. So genuine repentance culminates in a genuine, um, I will say, a worship when the repentant one ascribes to God the glory he deserves. And uh, Paul points this out, um, where he says that, this is in verse 23, we just spoke about that, that uh, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for idols. But... Uh, John focuses and foresees that day when the survivors of God, the call it the last day's judgment, will proclaim God's glory. And that's Revelation 11, 13. Indeed, he tells us of how an angel will proclaim the gospel, announce independent judgment, and call the nations to worship, exalting them in fear of the Lord and God, and give him glory. And that's 14, uh, 7 of Revelations. So there is a lot that we can actually take from this, uh, this one chapter. Let me look into how Samuel, the spiritual military leader, he uh, revives Israel, spirituality, politically, and delivers them from a Palestinian bondage. And the positive portrayal of uh, Samuel continues to contrast with Eli's household. So evident that in chapter 2 and 4, what we've seen before, so Israel's defeat was closely linked uh, with the house of uh, the death of Eli and his sons. The text seems to indicate that uh, that it uh, it was their sin that brought about the loss of the the ark. But Samuel now is linked with a military success, renewed security that his mother anticipated. Uh, you remember at a Thanksgiving song in chapter two. So the contrast between Samuel and Eli is facilitated by the fact that both Israel earlier defeated the and uh, the victory described in chapter 7, which occurred at the named where, uh, uh, Ebenezer. So Samuel's victory also foreshadows the greater victories to come under the king that he will anoint. And since victory shows that he enjoys God's favor, it, con uh, it contributes to the credentials as the one who will anoint the king and eventually elevate David over Saul. But you do get where now the sons are behaving badly as well. So, and you know, that seems to be a, 
a, a, uh, a sort of pattern amongst the people of God that their children, David has the same story. How does one bring one's household into order? It's like the enemy aims to break the household constantly, even though God is blessing the family. So you get that and um, repentance and bringing one's household to serve God is very essential. We see even somewhat uh, Moses' sons uh, don't get a good depiction. So how does, I mean, in the scriptures, which we could say godly man has a godly son, David's son, you can see even Solomon, has brought him up. So how much of our responsibility is making sure that our children actually follow the Lord? I don't think it's our responsibility to do that, but it's to bring him up in the ways of the Lord. Well, that's uh, interesting to see. So Israel, they demand a king. and They complain because Samuel's sons are not behaving very well. We see this in chapter 8. And, uh, but the underlining reason here is that they demand the desire to have a military leader who will ensure a national security. That's the ultimate issue, not about Samuel's sons. Where since they cared about morality or living holy, the request is surprising uh, to, uh, to them, to Samuel, but not to God because God had already uh, seen this request. At one time, they did try to uh, reinstate a king, you remember, at Abimelech, at uh, Judges, we read previously, but didn't work out for them. But now's the time, it seems, for them to... Uh, to get a king which will bring some sort of protection and social order in fact it does worse it oppresses the people and you get to read that through and then let's go to chapter 9 and now Israel demands this king of the nation who lives around them and they wanted to have this king that will demonstrate a, a not a counterculture of faith in the Lord but one that is normal which God didn't want as in the in Deuteronomy where the, the regulations do not uh, give Israel that authority to be like the other nations. It's required to be set aside, separated, to be a people that is pleasing to God. But you see, they do what they, what's everyone else is wanting to do. And that's not uh, what God intends. Now we come to chapter 9, uh, verse 1, and you see that Saul talks about him being a Benjamite. Now we know very well how why the Benjamites are a small group. You remember they had that little issue with the uh, where they the, the brothers attacked them and made their uh, population very little. So he, so the I mean he wants he is now selected to be a king and it's only purely by God's grace. But they wanted a king and God gave them a king that's after their heart. One who's tall, handsome and uh, you find out that his coronation hiding in a basket. So you've got that and we're now going to chapter, let's have a look at it. So we go to chapter 10 and at chapter 10 here we see that in response to the people's request the Lord decided to give them a king but he reserves the right to set the pattern for kingship, uh, recognizing the people's need for security. He chooses and commissions a ruler to deliver them from their enemies. The plot of chapter 8 sort of uh, tension now appears to be resolved, but a new plot of tension appears in the story. Though Samuel uh, presents Saul to the people as a qualified king based upon the superficial sort of uh, appearances like our world does, the narrator 
represents Saul uh, reveals a uh, serious character flaw that is foreshadowed in a deficient leader of the judges period. We see that despite his what, div, uh, divine commission, Saul is hesitant to carry out the Lord's purpose. Furthermore, some people are also observing his hesitancy, his hesitancy in realizing that this is not kingship material. And uh, so in chapter 10, verse 27, uh, Saul as king, the tensions will be resolved ultimately in tragedy, uh, in a tragic, pardon, fashion as the story continues to unfold. So you see stories like uh, Samson, Micah, Samuel, and Saul will begin the same sort of formula. Formula, The formal linking appears to be a design which is a parallel between the stories. Where they rise up, they intend to be individuals which will deliver Israel from the Palestine, uh, Palestine, uh, the Philistines, pardon, uh, as in, chapter, in Judges 13 and in 1 Samuel 9. But the Lord's Spirit rushes upon them and powers them for a physical conflict. And then the Lord removes his enabling presence uh, from both of them for their disobedience. Can you see that pattern emerging? And that's constantly we're seeing this. The peril casts Saul in the same role that he, the second Sam, like as, as if he's the second Samson. Uh, both are physically impressive, seemingly possess great promise, both die tragic deaths and disobeying God. How sad that is in our own lives as well, that God raises up us and we get blinded by our own sort of, uh, call it failures and faults. Uh, and I like what Spurgeon once said, that if he had somewhat 22 years to live, he would spend 20 years in preparation. And may that be a lesson to us all that, in all that we do, we want to make sure that we are prepared, we are ready for war, as in, suppose, so to speak, in this world, living in this world. So we get that, and um, we then go to chapter 11, and let's go to 11. And at chapter 11 now, the chapter of 10, we read of how the Lord gave Israel a king, yet replaced the limitations on him. However, not everyone was pleased with this arrangement or with the Lord's choice of a king, as you find in verse 27. Indeed, hesitant, um, Saul appears to be an unlikely candidate for the job. His apparent qualifications were only superficial. The chapter ends in tension and would Saul be effective a leader and delivers, will he deliver Israel from their enemies? Would Israel support Saul or would the troublemakers create problems within the nation? Chapter 11 appears yeah, to be uh, resolving this tension positively. The Lord energizes Saul and enables him to lead the Israel to victory. The people wholeheartedly support their new king and renew their alliances and allegiances with him. But uh, his initial success proves to be short-lived and eventually becomes to a tragi tragic end. So that's that, and uh, I mean, we, I don't want to be looking at a moral principle now as to saying, oh, well, what have we learned from this? Because I think it's more than this. Let's look at Jesus Christ and seeing him, that every leader ever since the beginning has always had flaws and failures. And our Bible doesn't shy away from pointing out those failures and flaws. But in one man, there's never been a failure nor a flaw in when every other man falls, Jesus Christ rises up and he becomes the 
substitutionary atoning work for us so that in him we have a life and we live and because in his obedience god is uh, we are justified and we are made righteous and thank god for that because what would we have become so i leave you with that have a lovely saturday sorry it's a bit late that i've recorded this um, otherwise i hope your reading is doing well if you've not finished your readings and you're way, way behind please i urge you this weekend try to catch up actually catch up if you could other than that stay safe god bless Thank you.